Welcome to the Calgary Sessions. This is episode number 79. I'm your host, Jeff Humphreys. Today's guest, how did we get here? Um, I found, we found each other after Russell Broom's podcast. And then I was like, oh shit, this guy's, this is something. So anyways, uh, just kind of watch him do his thing. Um, driving around Cadillacs is kind of the thing that really caught my attention. Um, so anyways, and then I just threw out the invite and here you are. And the timing of this is like hilarious because of what's been happening lately. So anyways, go ahead, name and who you are. My name is Devin Cooper. I'm a country artist and songwriter based out of right here in Calgary, Alberta. Ah, this is going to be, and I don't know if you know this, but I don't do any research on anybody. I love that. So, and, and I like, you know, I see what you're up to because we follow each other. So I totally. have a loose understanding, but I have no idea where you came from. I have no idea like what you're up to and where you like none of it. So this will be, to hear, feeling this for the first time is going to be spectacular. I'm excited. Um, so you've seen a couple of these, maybe one of them. Um, I like the guests to go back as far as they want to go. And so that's where they grew up how they grew up, who inspired them, you know, and we'll kind of drag you on your musical journey. But, totally. you know, before you, before you got here, there's a lot of things that happened. So I'm pumped to get into this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a big question to start with. It is, yeah. I'm trying to think, I guess, well, if we're talking about music, we've got to go. No, right let's, go, let's go before music. Let's before. go like, so for, if somebody asked me that question, I'd be like, I don't know, man, like... When I was a youngster, I was into sports and like school and you know riding my bike outside. Like I'd go back to there. So, all right. Well, uh, I remember being two years old. If we want to go right to the start, I'm in. <laughs> and we had one of those big CD players, the stand-up tower speakers that everybody had in the '90s. Two tape decks. Two tape decks. Mm -hmm. Five disc changer. Mm -hmm. You know, and we had the Beatles anthology um, CDs, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I remember putting in the CD and cranking Day Tripper as loud as I could, that intro guitar riff. And I just listened to that over and over again. And I just loved it. <laughs> and then my mom had a Yamaha Clavinova piano from the 80s that would actually like play itself and could teach you how to play. So you could plug in this little chip into it in an 80s keyboard and it would play these songs. And there was like this 12 bar blues, like boogie thing it would play. And there's videos of me when I'm like one and a half sitting at the piano, just bobbing my head, <laughs> rocking out. I'll see if I can find a video. I'll send it to you. It's hilarious. That'd be awesome. So music was always around. Mm -hmm. I always loved it. And my dad owned a custom motorcycle shop, built custom motorcycles and hot rods. My mom is a registered nurse. So that's kind of so where, like, where the parents are. Yeah. Uh, polar opposites yep. in terms of career. Mm-hmm. Other than, I guess, attention to detail and the care that goes into it. I yep. guess that, that would be the same for them. When I was five years old, I started begging my parents for a guitar. <laughs> I want to play guitar. I want to play guitar. I Where'd you grow guitar. up? Grew up in Innisfil, Alberta. Um, little town, about 7,000 people. Was born about 20 minutes west of town. We had an acreage out there. When I was four, we moved into town as I was starting kindergarten, grade one kind of thing. And that's mm -hmm. when my dad moved to shop from our acreage into town as he was kind of expanding the business. Yep. And so I guess grade one, five years old, started begging my parents for a guitar. Just like music was in you? It was just in me. Yep. My dad grew up playing piano, but he says he didn't play piano. Like he could sit down and play it, but he couldn't like just play piano. And my yep. mom, same kind of thing. She, she played piano, but never, never necessarily pursued it or she didn't take lessons or things like that. So mm -hmm. it was, there was always like a piano around and, and music playing, music yep. was very prominent in our house. 
So I started begging my parents for a guitar. And they're like, you're five. In two weeks, you're going to want to do something different, as every five-year-old does. Yep. So a month later, two months later, six months later, I'm still begging them. I just, I want a guitar so bad. <laughs> so they said, okay, save up all your money from your allowances and your birthdays and your report cards and whatever. Keep getting good grades and pretty soon you'll have enough money. You can buy your own guitar then if that's what you really want. Okay. Five and a half years old, I start saving up my money. Saved it till I was seven. Had enough money to buy a guitar out of the Sears catalog. One of those little like Christmas catalogs yeah, 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 yeah. that they sell the Sears guitars. <laughs> and my parents were like, obviously he wants to play. Like this has been two years now of yep. him really wanting this. Like we should, we should try and make this happen. So I woke up Christmas morning and there was a brand new shiny black electric guitar sitting there, a little amp beside it. But it came with the condition that all the money I'd saved up I had to spend on my first six months of lessons. No way. So there was still an investment for me in that. Mm -hmm. They were willing to, to get the guitar and, yep. and make it happen. And, but yeah, I had to pay for the first six months lessons. So we found a guitar teacher in Innisfail and my parents called him up and were like, would you be willing to teach our son? He's seven. And as soon as they said that I was seven, the guy was like, ah, oh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> One of those se <laughs> seven year olds that they, they, they're not really, they don't, they don't have the attention span. Mm -hmm. A lot of times their hands necessarily don't work well enough to, to really latch onto it. Yep. And they're like, he's like, but I'll give it a try. Let's do three lessons. We'll give it a try. We'll see if it works. After the first lesson, he was like, I'm in. He's got it. I want to teach him. Hmm. And he was in. Um, What's with the guitar? Why, what, like, what was the guitar that brought you in? Like, was it, did you see something? Was it, did you understand how, like all front, front people have guitars, like what was it? I don't know what it was. I'd never been to a concert at that point. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to my first, I guess I'd went to my first concert when I was six. So, and that was Nickelback in Red Deer. No way. We got tickets the day of the show and the <laughs> tickets said row one on the floor, front row tickets. So my mom and myself were like, we get to go to the show. We walk into the Centrum in Red Deer and it's general admission mosh pit. There's no rows, just said row one. And now she's like, oh my God, what did I, <laughs> what did I just do bringing my six-year-old kid to this Nickelback show with five or 6,000 people or whatever it is. Crazy. And so that was when I was six. So I feel like that probably had a pretty big impact on me too uh, in wanting to continue pursuing playing guitar. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, then when I was seven, that's when I got it. And I don't know what the fascination with guitar necessarily was. I know that I loved music. There's, like I said, that Day Tripper Beatles riff. I just yeah. cranked it and listened to yeah. it over and over again. Uh, at some point, I probably asked, like, what what's making that sound? And someone said a guitar, and it's like, well, then that's what I want to do. I'm in. And so your teacher, my teacher, lesson one, he's like, I'm in. Lesson one, he was in, and. He was a classic rock guy, and I grew up listening to like classic rock, hair metal. That's what my mom listened to, and my dad listened to like southern rock and blues. <laughs> Your mom liked hair metal, so she was like Molly Crew, Judas Priest. That's that's what was cranked in our house every day. Awesome. So that's the stuff that I wanted to learn how to play. Hmm. And the guitar teacher I had was like played in a classic rock cover band, so that was all the stuff he knew. Hmm. So it worked out perfectly because starting to learn, I didn't learn a lot of necessarily the theory that you probably should have learned. Actually, I won't say should have learned because I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way to yep. do it. I think that there's just different approaches and they lead you in different paths. Mm -hmm. So first lesson, it was like, 
Smoke on the Water, and then it was Back in Black. You remember all this, hey? And then... Like, vividly? Like, you just... Oh, yeah. Mm. And then it was, like, Iron Man, All Right Now by Free, like, all of these classic rock hits. And I would wake up in the morning, walk out of the bedroom. We lived in, like, a log cabin at the time, so walk down the hall and sit down beside the fireplace. I'd still be asleep, like, sleep in my eyes, and I'd pick up my guitar and play it for half an hour every morning and then sat down, go get ready for school. Every night before bed, I'd play all night until mm. it was time to go to bed. And I think it was grade one or grade two, I asked one of my teachers if I could play a show for the school. I'd been playing for like six months. And we have this on camera. My parents had one of those like big VHS cameras <laughs> no or whatever. And so I went in and, and played like five songs for the school, this little school I went to. And- What's the video look like? Are you any good or are you like- yeah, like it sounds like the songs. Yeah, like it's uh, like you can tell what everything is. Mm. <laughs> There's actually one point <laughs> the teacher started singing along, and I stopped and I said, "This is my show, not yours." <laughs> <laughs> Had some confidence. <laughs> so I don't know where that came from, but uh, yeah, that was was all I wanted to do. Mm. So young. So now you're seven. Playing in front of people. Yeah. So where, 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 where's the path go after that? It was a lot of playing at home for the first few years, I guess, like everybody does, sit in their basement. Is it all consuming? Like, is, is music all consuming? Is there, like, anything else that you're into? Or is it just, like, I'm, I'm music? Music was the main thing. Yep. Uh, I golfed with my pop a lot. I was a not very athletic kid. I golfed and I curled. <laughs> uh Awesome. <laughs> Bold. Uh, pretty cool. Super um, cool. <laughs> so music was like the cool thing. Mm -hmm. But also I feel like a lot of times when you're younger, music isn't necessarily cool. But yeah. it was something that I, could, I couldn't get away from it. Mm -hmm. If there was a choice to do, to pursue any of those things, mm -hmm. music always took the number one. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent a lot of time in my dad's motorcycle shop as well. He had built me a little custom bike when I was like five or six years no old. Way. And so I rode that lots and mm. was always hanging out in the shop, working on things and mm. have like a huge love and passion for vehicles, classic cars and motorcycles. But this is all starting to make sense. <laughs> and so I think, I think also watching my dad in his shop be creative mm. and creating something out of nothing was kind of what I wanted to do with music. Yep. Even though they're very different, I feel like it's the same, it's the same creative passion that drives both of them. Yep. And so I got to see that in him, in his shop, and his, the innovation and creativity that he had. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, seven years old, playing guitar, playing shows. I guess it would have been about 12 or 13, maybe 11. I got hooked up with a couple other musicians, and we did like a one-off showcase in Sylvan Lake one time. I think we called ourselves 1111 because we were all 11 years old or something like that. Awesome. <laughs> and did like this 12-bar blues thing that mm. uh, one of my dad's close friends who was a mentor to him when he was younger was also a mentor to me on guitar. And so it was a song that him and his wife had written. And mm. we ended up playing that song at this little showcase thing. Awesome. About 13, I started playing in a band with some friends of mine in school. We were or maybe it was 14, 13, 14, or 15 we were. It was three of us, yep. two brothers. They were 13 and 15, and I was the middle one of 14. And we actually, it was weird. We had a weird little shtick we did. Our, we had a 15-song set, 
and there'd be five songs I was up front on guitar, five songs I was on bass, five songs I was on drums. Whoa. And we would all switch. And that was like our little shtick we had. To, so to, <laughs> to pull that off, to be able to play three different instruments, is that like practice all the time? Are you just naturally figuring it out or like? Well, I had an uncle, great uncle, who was a drummer in a band in like the 60s or 70s. And one night he told me, I should give you my old drum kit. And I, I guess I would have been about 10 at this point. And so we, we followed up with a phone call a little while later and um, his, his son was at the house and danced with the phone and was like, dad doesn't have a drum kit. Like he hasn't had a drum kit in 40 years. And so then I, I don't even know if I should be saying this, but to the family, I think kind of bugged him. And we're like, you told this kid you're gonna give him a drum kit. So he went and bought me a brand new drum kit and dropped it off at the house one day. No way. And uh, set it up in the basement and I just started basically learning how to play drums. Like mm. I, I didn't take lessons or anything, I just, wanted to play drums and I still have a huge fascination for drums and mm -hmm. watching drummers. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I could have gone two ways. I could yeah. have been a drummer. I could have been yeah. what I'm doing now. So that was kind of where that the started. The shtick sounds awesome. <laughs> I would love to see just like three youngsters just rotating. We have so many videos online that are hidden and hidden away so nobody can find them. <laughs> Will you ever get to a point that they'll come out? Maybe. Yeah. Whatever I do still. I pulled them up the other day and showed someone because I was like, at this point now it is actually kind of cool to look back. Yeah. I feel like when you're first starting out and when I kind of yeah. ventured on my own solo career, it was like I don't want to talk about that. I don't mm. want to. I don't want to show that. But at this point now, it's like we were 14 years old. Yeah, like totally. there's, yeah, it's it's not everyone's bad at 14. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like there's only yeah yeah. And looking back, it's like we were actually not terrible for 14. Mm -hmm. um, so played in the band, we played lots of like Battle of the Bands. We put together a big show at the high school, had the middle school and the high school come together. We had Marshall Stacks on stage and it was like a straight up rock and roll show. Awesome. And then when I was 15, I guess, I started writing my own songs, 14 or 15. And at this point I hadn't started singing yet, but I started writing songs. So mm -hmm. I was writing the lyrics and, and writing the music and I had a little four track recorder that I got from what would be my second or third guitar teacher mm -hmm. that recorded to a cassette. So you could plug your guitar into this thing and multi-track to a cassette and record back over it to build up the layers. Awesome. <laughs> and so I started making all these demos of these songs that I was writing. And then I decided I want to record a record. So what are you writing about at 15? What's inspiring you then? Like, what's like that? Do you remember the first song you wrote? I do. I still play it at shows sometimes. And what, what, so what, tell me what's, I want to know what your, 15 year old brain is like, I need to pen this song out. That the first song I ever wrote was called 40 Below. And it was basically a snapshot image of one night living in our log cabin. Uh, a typical small town Alberta winter, minus 40. Is it like I have my own picture? Like, I don't know, 1200 square feet, 1000 square foot. Yeah, 1100 on the main floor. Yeah. Uh, basically, just a bungalow. Mm -hmm. Walk in the front door. Mm -hmm. Front door and back door are in the same spot. And then the house goes either way from it. Over yep. here is big living room, vaulted ceilings, fireplace, mm -hmm. kitchen, dining room here, and then a hallway with bedrooms and bathrooms. Okay. So just like a standard bungalow kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there's 40 below outside. There's 10 feet of snow on the ground. No one's car was starting. And we had a fire going. And we're sitting by the fire. It was keeping us warm. And the song is literally about that moment right there. Mm. It's just, it talks about all of the details, like hands are turning blue and you're sitting in front of the fire to try and stay warm and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And yeah, I still play it at shows, especially in the middle of winter when it's actually minus 40. Um, what does that feel like when you get to play that? It's 
It's cool. It's like, like when you, a, when that, those first few chords when you're about to get into it. This is like something. It, it's very. It's cool to look back on that. And it's, it's very reminiscent of mm -hmm. a time in my life that kind of started everything. Yep. Um, and it's also cool to be able to have a song like that that is the first one that to the day to this day I'm still proud of and can play, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I've written a lot of bad songs since then. <laughs> so to have the first one kind of stand on its own still is it is cool. It's super cool. So all the things I was writing about, this is actually an interesting thing because growing up listening to hard rock and hair metal and southern rock and blues, blues is always just like kind of a storytelling. Mm -hmm. Hard rock and hair metal, it does, it does I love it. It doesn't really make sense. There's no, it's not really a lot we're talking about. <laughs> uh, but I was always intrigued by storytelling, which I think is what led me to country music in the end. Mm. Because I, when I listened to songs that I loved, they always took you on this journey, whether it was about having a good time or a bad time, or it took you on this emotional journey throughout the song. Yep. And so everything I was writing from day one tried to have some sort of story that I was telling. It wasn't just, I play the song live, I love it, but like pour some sugar on me doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So everything I wrote, I wanted to, to try and say something. I didn't, to, and I didn't really know what I wanted to say at the time, but I just knew I had to say something. And do you say something, could it just be like begin on, beginning, middle, end? Like just had to be like a traditional kind of story? Totally, it just, it, it took you on some sort of journey, yeah. whether that was, I had one song that was about going down south where the blues started. I've never been down south, I was 15 years old, but mm -hmm. I wrote this story about that. It was this character I'd made up in my head that was mm -hmm. going on this journey to find where it all started. Cool. And... What's your, uh, sorry, I'm gonna interrupt you because yeah. I'm like, um, when you're start, what are your parents saying to you at, at this point in your life? You're 15, writing songs, playing a bunch of instruments. Are they just like letting you do your thing? Oh, that's a, that's, that's a great song. Good for you. You know, sit down for dinner. Not the sit down for dinner. They were 100% supportive to let me just run with it. Mm. There was no, okay, it's time to stop. Unless it was drums really late at night, then it was time to stop. Yeah. But for the most part, it was just, they could see the passion that I had for it mm -hmm. and they didn't want to do anything to put that fire out. Yep. So they did everything they could. They, we turned half the basement into a jam studio and the, the log house actually used to be a bed and breakfast. So there was a little stage in the basement from before when we lived there. So the drums went on there and all the stuff. So it was, it was a natural fit <laughs> to have a little music room down there. Awesome. But I, I feel very fortunate because they basically just let me run with it and mm -hmm. did, did everything they could to emotionally support me yep. and encourage me in those, I think, very important learning years. Mm -hmm. um, so 15, you're starting to write songs. And then I decided I want to record a record. Well, if I'm going to record a record, I should probably learn how to sing. Never sung before. So Details, hey? That's <laughs> an important thing to think about. <laughs> so I reach out to a bunch of singing teachers, my parents do, and we, we try and find someone that's going to take me on. And none of them, I, I have a bunch of, one-off lessons with a bunch of teachers and none of them are, it's not working. It's just, it's not resonating for either of us. Mm. 
And then I got one teacher in Sylvan Lake. And I was going through the lesson with her. And she said, let me ask you a question. She said, why do you want to sing? What is it that makes you want to sing? Because all these other teachers were just teaching me scales and classical type theater things that it, it wasn't connecting. That's not mm-hmm. what I want to do. So why am I going to do it? And mm-hmm. it, it didn't work either way. Yep. And the coach in Sylvan Lake said, why do you want to sing? I said, well, because I've written all these songs. I play guitar and I want to record them. She said, well, bring your guitar to the lesson then. If you've written all these songs and you want to play them, sing them, well, let's work on that. Let's figure out how you can sing these songs. Mm. That's the important thing. If that's what you want to do, then let's figure out how to do that. And we can worry about the other stuff later. And I feel like that was the same with my first guitar teacher. It's like, I'm not going to teach you all the things that are going to bore you. I'm going to teach you things that are going to excite you and inspire you to want to learn more. And if you can get over that hurdle of being able to play something that you want to, that brings joy to what you're doing, I think it makes the hard work a lot better. Mm -hmm. And so this one teacher recognized that and was like, you don't want to just sing. You want to sing these songs you've written. That's why you want to do this. Mm -hmm. And it completely changed everything in terms of how I approach singing, how she approached teaching it. And so I took lessons for three months and then recorded a record. (laughs) (laughs) Just like that. (laughs) And so my best friend growing up, his older brother, who's still in Calgary now, had a studio. And so I had a meeting with him and figured out how we were going to do it. I had four songs I wanted to record. Mm -hmm. Actually, five songs I wanted to record. And he said, well, let's let's pick four. And I was going to play all the instruments too, drums, bass, guitar, piano, everything. And so we booked three days in the studio. And he said, I think we should be able to get four songs done in the three days for you. We blew through the four songs, got five done. So then I wrote another one on the spot and we recorded six. And that ended up being the title track to the record, which was just an instrumental track. And it was... It was a learning process for me. Yep. It was, again, it's cool to look back on now. I don't, yep. I don't actually really consider that my first record because it yep. was like, it was, it's a, it's a timestamp in history of something that I did that was mm-hmm. like a challenge for me that I could actually do that. Yep. So I was in grade 10, I guess, at that time. It, young. Yeah. And, and even to, to like finance it, I'm sure you were like saving or yeah. got help from wherever and you like, this was a goal. Absolutely. You accomplished it. Took out. Took my life savings from all the jobs I'd worked and mm. I started cutting grass and working when I was about nine years old, I guess, to start funding other guitars and other things like that. And Always like kind of like labor jobs? Yeah, I was cutting grass to start uh, for a bunch of family members, 10 bucks a lawn and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And when I was 14, I actually got a job at a music store in Ennisville, a guitar shop opened. Mm. And so I worked there, basically tuned the guitars every day, played all the guitars, sold guitars. Then started working at the golf course when I was 15. And also started doing work experience at Napa Auto Parts at the same time as the golf course through school. So that wasn't a paid job, but I used the work experience to get in with the people at Napa so I could turn it into a job mm. and ended up working at Napa. I guess I'm still an employee at Napa now. I haven't worked there in about two years, <laughs> but uh, turned turned that work experience into a job. So yeah, selling auto parts and again, then working in another kind of passion of my yeah. life is automotive industry. Like it fits. Yeah. Hmm. So saved up all the money, recorded the record, sold, I think, 500 copies of it. Okay. How, how does this even happen? How do you sell 500 copies? So then I started booking shows. I recorded the record. I'd never done a solo show by myself. It was always with the other band that yep. I was in. And I decided I was going to go my own way, do my own thing. So I booked 
an acoustic solo show at the music store in Innisfail, mm -hmm. where I worked. And played my first acoustic show there, started playing a few shows around, and then I got a gig in Red Deer at a bar that no longer exists. I was, I would have been 16. They didn't know I was 16, they thought I was 18, which is how I got the gig. And I had a monthly gig there that was three 45 minute sets. So I had to learn three 45 minutes worth of material, wow. solo acoustic. Uh, it would be like Thursday nights or that kind of thing. Mm. And I played there for pretty much till I was 19, I guess. It was a lot. So that was what got me in the door in terms of a lot of live performing on my own. Mm -hmm. And that's where I sold CDs and I got t-shirts made and things like that and no kind of started growing it out that way. Did you, those decisions, you know, to, <clears throat> to be going after gigs, to be, you know, uh, selling swag and, you know, the marketing side of it, was that a natural fit for you? Like you knew you needed to create exposure around yourself and you, you know, you had to connect with people? Yes and no. I also think at the time I'd, I, I knew it was marketing, but I didn't know it was. Yep. And I think I also just thought it was cool to have my own t-shirt. For sure. <laughs> it's that basic. Because I always, we basically stopped going to, on summer vacations and my parents just started taking me to concerts. And that was kind of a flip. When, after I went to that first concert, mm. we started going to a ton of shows. And I've, I don't know, I've probably seen over a thousand shows now of bands that I like. No way. Like so, a ridiculous amount. Uh, so your parents would just pack up and drive you, drive, well, the whole family would drive yeah. somewhere and Calgary, for a show. Edmonton. And, or Red Deer or wherever it was. No no, not farther than that, like just yeah. within the couple hour distance of Innisfail. Hmm. And we started spending so much money on concert tickets. It's like, okay, we have to choose either we're going to do like a two-week summer vacation in the summer yeah. or we can go to concerts throughout the year. Concerts. I go to concerts. Your parents were on board. They were on board. S I'm pretty much the luckiest kid alive. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> they, uh, and they liked them. My mom always liked going to shows. Yeah. My dad, they like going to shows, but they didn't love it. But they could see, I think, how it was fueling me mm -hmm. and getting to see how people reacted to the music that people played and even seeing how the audience reacts to things. I think it inspired me to want to feel yeah. what I saw and what I felt as a fan listening. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to create music that made someone else feel like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they basically changed all of our summer plans forever and... Started going to concerts. Crazy. And when I was 16 and started driving and things like that, then I kind of took over the role and me and my buddies would go to all the shows and mm. stuff like that. So Crazy. Um, you sell 500 copies. Friends, family, people in the crowd, wherever Red Deer, wherever you're, you know. Yeah. You, you keep showing up, they keep showing up, eventually they're going to buy something. Totally. Okay, so 500 copies. 500 copies. It's no joke, right? Yeah, it's, it's a fair amount. Yeah. For, uh, like, I don't know, it seems like a lot. Yeah, and I think at the time it would have been 20... Would have been 2013. Okay. 10 years ago. So CDs were more relevant then than they are now. For sure. I don't think streaming services were really a thing then, or maybe just getting started. I mean, uh, there was LimeWire yeah. and Napster and all those things that were... The good ones. The good ones. And, mm -hmm. But people were still burning CDs, still making yep. mixtapes and all yeah, that, yeah. that kind of stuff. So yep. there was a demand for CDs. Mm -hmm. And I also think it was... A lot of people wanted to buy them just because it was, it was cool that this kid had done this. Yep. It's like... I'll give you my 20 bucks for that. Like yep. that's maybe not necessarily for the music that was on it, but for the Sporting. for the effort that mm -hmm. went into it. 17, graduate high school, moved to Calgary, start going to SAIT. 
Power engineering. Power engineering. What's that? So that's basically anything to do with steam, running boilers, gas plants, oil refineries. Could be breweries too, I guess. Mm. Uh, downtown buildings that have yep. all the boiler systems okay. in them. Yeah. So I moved to Calgary. Well, I, I applied for college, applied for state. That's what I wanted to do. And my parents didn't force me to go to school. I just wanted to go to school for, for whatever reason. Just like, I just want to do this. This is something I want to do. Mm-hmm. It'll get me out of the small town. It'll allow me to connect with a bunch of other like-minded people who are mm-hmm. there for the same reason. Because uh, small towns are very, they're small towns. They're great. Yeah. We love them. Yep. But they're small towns. Yeah. Some people, it sounds like they get to a point where like they just need more. Yeah. And that's why they got to exactly. conti- continue. So came to Calgary, applied for college, actually didn't get in um, for whatever reason. I had, I had all the grades. I had everything like that that was good enough to get in, but just the way it worked out, my application mm-hmm. didn't make it. And I got a phone call August 10th or something. School starts in three weeks from then. And they revisited my application and I got in. So then it's a scramble because mm-hmm. I prepared to just work at Napa for the next year full time, yep. play shows, and I guess I'll reapply next year and see if I can get in. And that would have obviously changed the course of my life. And so I got in school, had some great family friends in Calgary that let me live with them for the first year. Cool. And that was kind of a cool transition period where it was, I was moved out of the house, still 17, couldn't go to the bar, couldn't drink, those Young, kind of things. like... But it was, I was on my own, but I wasn't on my own. It was mm-hmm. always like a safe place to go back to. Yep. And second year of college, ended up getting my own place with a couple people in my class, a buddy of mine and his girlfriend. We had a condo and still playing a ton of music. I guess also at this time, I'm getting, trying to get my timeline straight as well. I won a radio contest in Olds <laughs> that was for the rock station in Olds, Rock 104. Okay. And it was October 24th that the contest was, and I was 17, and I turned 18 on the 25th. So again, snuck into the bar the day before I was 18. Ended up winning the contest, no and way. then they found out I was 17 and had to kick me out of the bar, and I couldn't be in the bar the rest of the night because yep. I snuck in, and my parents were there watching, and there was, <laughs> like, there was other family members that knew that I wasn't 18 that were there, but we just, just be, better to ask for, for forgiveness than yep. permission sometimes. So I won that. And then while I'm in Calgary going to school, part of what the radio contest included was a recording session time at Evergreen Studios in Calgary, cool. where you'd get to go record a song. And so I come to Calgary in school, get to go record on the weekend. And it's myself, and then they bring in a band that's going to be the backing band. And in the rock world that I'd grown up in, that was an interesting, that was a weird thing, because normally it's like Motley Crue, that's the band. Yep. In the country world, it is singers and then a lot of hired guns it's not necessarily the band it's like this artist with these musicians that are hired yeah so that's how the recording session was approached even though it was for the rock station go into the recording session with mark troyer at evergreen there's a guy named justin cutting who's a bass player brought in and a drummer named ben bradley meet them again i didn't know any musicians so outside of my tiny little circle in innisfail so (laughs) they're the first guys i meet and we record the song. And then the next part of the radio contest, it was actually me against another band. And the, both songs that got recorded went head to head. And whoever won the next part of this voting thing got to open for Lou Graham, a foreigner. Cool. And so I'm 18 years old now at this point, second year of college. 
was in between years working at the Penn Growth gas plant outside of Olds for the summer as a summer student. Get this gig to open for Lou Graham, a foreigner. You won the, you won the, I won the next part. Yep. And then I go, well, I don't know any musicians that I can hire to play with me, but the only people I know are those people that played on the recording in Calgary. So I call up Justin and I was like, would you be interested in playing the show? And he's like, yeah, sure. So I get him and Ben Bradley. And then one of my guitar teachers when I was younger in Red Deer had a keyboard player that played for him. And I always liked keys in band and Steve Ray Vaughan had a keyboard player in his band and all that kind of stuff. So it was like, well, I've got to have a keyboard player. So it was me, Justin, Ben, and then a guy named Nick Partridge, who was like late 60s, early 70s keyboard player from Red Deer that was originally from Northern England. So I called up all of them. We rehearsed in my parents' basement that afternoon and then went and played the show. And that was the first full band show I'd ever played on my own. A little time jumping here. Justin is still playing with me now, the bass player. He's mm -hmm. one of my producers. He's the band leader. And here we are, it's all connected. I guess, eight years later. And Crazy. We're still working together on that. So, which is kind of cool there. It's insane. <laughs> like all these little, <laughs> like it just, the chances are... It, it's wild. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, even for me now, as I'm retelling the story, thinking about all of the little weird things that were happening at the time, you don't really realize that. And I think for a lot of years, I didn't necessarily acknowledge what was happening. I didn't, even when I won the radio contest or won those things, it was like, cool, what's the next thing we can do with yep. the next thing instead yep. of acknowledging the little successes? Because I think that that's really important. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something I've learned in the last few years that I need to acknowledge those little successes because yep. looking back now, it's like there's a lot of cool things that I could have been more proud of mm -hmm. than I am mm -hmm. or than I was at the time, yep. I guess. For sure. Um, so yeah, finished college. You got, you got your ticket? What is got it? Got my ticket, yep. third class, power engineer. Cool. So I worked the summer at the gas plant to get enough steam time to get my ticket when I graduated the second year. Did you have any, as you're going through school, music's still there, obviously. It's not, it's not going away. Totally. Did you ever, were you okay with the idea that this was going to be your, your career? You know, working, working with, with, your degree, with your ticket? Like, were you okay with that? Or was it just like you did it, you needed this thing, and you got it? And then it was time to figure out music? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever actually was going to do that. I think I wanted, I wanted to do the school. I wanted to meet the people. I wanted to connect with a bunch of people from various places around Canada, basically, that came yep. for this common reason. Like I said, getting out of a small town mm -hmm. where you're forced to be there. Yep. You're not there because you want to be there. And now you change to going to this school where you're all paying to be there. You're all there for the same reason. Yep. And you're kind of all in it together. And I had an unbelievable class of, of people that I went to school with in, in state. We're still great friends. We were in Edmonton a couple weeks ago, met up with some of them, cool. had a beer. And that's, again, yeah, seven, eight years later. And mm -hmm. we're, we're still in contact, even though we've all gone our own ways again and moved back across the country and a bunch of things like that. So I finished school. Don't have a job. Didn't apply for any jobs coming out of school for whatever reason. Everybody else did. I didn't apply for any. Come back to my parents' place in Innisfail, and I go, hey, mom, dad, there's something I want to tell you. And they're like, oh, what's that? And I was like, I'm going to pursue music. I'm not going to get a job as a power engineer. My dad goes, oh? <laughs> and I go, yep. And he goes, how do you plan on doing that? What's your plan? Well, I already talked to my boss at Napa, Warren. 
He said, I can work here as much as I want or as little as I want. He will let me work six days a week if I want. I can go play shows every night. If I have to come in late the next morning, that's okay. If I have to leave early one day, that's okay. And he, he was one of the best, the best boss I could ever ask for at that point. Mm-hmm. He saw that this was something I wanted to do and gave me the opportunity to work as much as I could to make a living and as mu- gave me as much time off as I needed to pursue music. And he knew that there would come a time where it was either one or the other, where I either fully committed to this or this or yep. whatever went my own way. And so I told my dad that I was going to work at Napa. And I was going to play shows. And he goes, okay, because like, you still have to pay rent. There's still bills. Like, You're 18 now. There's 18 and a half or almost 19. Mm-hmm. Like, You got to pay rent. You can't, you can't live here for free if you're working. It's like you pay rent. You pay your bills. You, you got to make a living somehow. So as long as you can make a living, then I think that you should do it. Both my parents said that, not just my dad. And so then it was the next year and a half, basically, of working six days a week at Napa. I was there at 6 6 a.m. every morning, driving back and forth to Calgary, trying to integrate myself in the community, meet other artists and songwriters. How'd you do that? What was your... There was one time that I think everything changed. I had put out... Actually, the song that we recorded as a part of the radio contest, I nominated myself for a YYC Music Award. It was the first year they had them, I think. And I remember coming to Calgary because I ended up in the final ballot for Blues Recording of the Year. And I don't know anyone in Calgary other than the people I went to school with. So I show up at the award, and I remember walking in the front door of the National Music Center. It was the first time I'd ever been there. Drew Gregory, who's now a very good friend of mine, was playing in the lobby, playing some acoustic songs. I don't even know if he knows that I remember him there. And I remember looking around. There's all these rock bands standing alone, kind of like segregated little cliques. Mm -hmm. And then over on this side was this huge community of all these people. And I remember asking someone, like, who are all those people? Because there's very distinctive sections of people, and then there's this massive group. They're like, oh, that's the that's the country community. It's like, what do you mean? They're like, oh, well, they all just, they just all kind of hang together, work together. I was like, I'd never seen that because again, growing up in the world of watching rock bands, it's mm-hmm. very like, this is our band, we do our thing, we do, that's it. Yep. So then, Justin and Ben Bradley had just recently got the gig playing for Brett Kissel, so that was kind of my intro to country music through them. And also, I'm going to backtrack. I'm scattered. I'm all over Dude, the place here. Don't do it. Don't, no apologizing. When, no I was, <laughs> when I was driving back and forth to school, when I was 17, I drove a 76 Oldsmobile, and it only had an AM radio. And the only station I could get was the AM country station in Calgary. So that's all I listened to, driving back and forth to school every day. And that's when I realized a lot of the songs I've been writing were basically country music, although I didn't have the necessarily production or instrumentation that made it sound like country. Mm. So that was kind of when the light bulb clicked on of like, oh, like I think I'm actually writing country tunes. And of course, growing up in a small town, you go to rodeos, you go to farm parties, mm-hmm. river parties. It's it's all of those things yep. that encompasses the country music lifestyle and everything that it is. Mm-hmm. So I go to these awards and I see all these people there and they go, that's the country community. And I go, well, I want to be a part of that. How do I become a part of that? So then I started, excuse me. Reaching out to Justin, when Brett was coming through town, I'd go out to a show, watch the show, and got to know his band. 
So my intro to the country world was like the A-level best players, best musicians basically in Canada, mm -hmm. arguably North America. So I'm very fortunate that that's how I got into the world of country music. And around the same time, I guess I was still in college at this point. My timelines are all messed up. <laughs> I got an opportunity to record at a studio that was in Calgary called The Beach. I remember hearing about that place. And so they had all of their students that took the recording engineering programs there mm -hmm. that would get to bring in a band and record them. And that was kind of their final project is they'd get to record a band. And again, I didn't know any players, so I called Ben and Justin. Your boys. That's all I knew. <laughs> we went in, we did two days at the beach <clears throat> and recorded a song, never released the song, but got to go in there and record and work. And I remember one of the days after we finished recording, one of my friends from Minnesville called me and said, hey, I'm coming to Calgary tonight. I'm going to a concert. You should come with me. And I go, who is it? And he tells me two names I've never heard before. And I was like, well, where is it? He's like, it's a Cowboys. And I was like, is it a country show? He's like, yeah. And I was like, I don't want to go. I'm out. Like, I don't want to go see a country show at Cowboys. It's a Thursday night. I got school in the morning. Or, yeah, this was a Sunday night that the show was. So I had school the next morning. I just finished recording for two days. I was like, I'm tired. I don't want to go. And he's like, I got free tickets. I think you should go. You really like them. Said, okay, well, who is it? A guy named Kip Moore, a band called the Cadillac Three. And I go, never heard of him. Didn't even listen to them before we went to the show. So he comes to Calgary. We have dinner. We go down to Cowboys. We get there at like 8.15. And the free tickets that he had were only good till 8 o'clock. After 8 o'clock, got to pay the cover. So now we got to pay to get into the show that I don't want to go to. And I'm like, man, I'm, I told you I don't want to, I'm not paying money to see this now. I already don't want to be here. And he's like, I'll pay for you to go. I think you would like them. Pays, it was like 20 bucks or something. But broke college student, it's like, mm, that's enough. That's like two cases of beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, or a week worth of groceries. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so he pays my, pays my cover to get in. We go into the show and we're standing there. I'm You're like, pissed. Just like, whatever. Sure. I'll hang out. We'll watch the show. These three guys walk out on stage, the Cadillac three. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. Maybe, maybe to hear it, but not to. Three long haired dudes with Marshall stacks on stage. And they start playing and it's like ZZ Top. And I was like, that's not country music. <laughs> and if it is, I'm in. <laughs> so I'd seen the country community. The country community might have been after that, actually, where I saw at the National Music Center of that community. Because yeah. I remember s seeing this band and I was like, I'm in. If that's what country music is, I'm in. They played their set. I was completely blown away, completely floored. Then they go off stage. Kip Moore comes out and he's wearing an Indian motorcycle t-shirt. And I'm like, well, he likes bikes. So... It's, he gets one point, here mm -hmm. we are, yep. and they start playing, and it's like this anthemic rock show. And he was touring a record called Wild Ones at the time, and it's one of my favorite records to this day now. And that show completely changed my life. I was like, I'm fully in. Like, if that's what country music is now, mm. because listening to the AM radio in my car, they're not playing yep. Kip Moore and the Cadillac 3 on the AM radio station. Who's your buddy that that pulled you out to the show? Uh, his name's Connor. Does he know, like... He does, yeah. Connor. <laughs> nice work. <laughs> yeah, literally. In uh, what I consider my debut record that came out last year, I thanked him in it because... Uh, cool. I, I think if I didn't go to that show, again, it would have been a very different mm -hmm. path to get to wherever I'd end up. Mm -hmm. Isn't but, that weird? These little moments? yeah. That just can like left, right, wherever, 
it's not better or best, it's just different. Yeah. But these little, little moments in time, how important they actually are. Totally. So yeah, I'd known the Brett Kessel camp. Again, I wasn't really like into the music though. It wasn't, there was nothing that was pulling me in. I knew that I was writing it, but the, the production style mm -hmm. of most country music wasn't resonating with me. And then I see these guys and I was like, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that was a thing. Mm. How do I do that? That's what I want to do. Mm. And so is it like then, goosebumps at that show? Like, are you like totally alive when you're figuring this out in the moment? Like, is it everything yeah. like electric for you? I, I, it was complete and utter confusion because mm. I didn't know what I was walking into. And I don't think I knew what hit me until a couple months later because mm. I went home, followed both bands online, downloaded all of their music, or I think on that at that time bought them all on iTunes or whatever, yep. and listened to it nonstop. And I was like, to this day, they're still some of my biggest influences, mm. both musically and production-wise, but also the career path that they've chosen in terms of not necessarily everything being commercial to have a radio hit, but by playing live shows and building fans, mm. which is exactly what they did with me. If you can get them in the door and you can win them over with the show, you can keep them. Yeah. And that was pretty much the earliest example of something that I did not want to be at. Mm -hmm. And they turned me into a complete fan. So that's something that I've always wanted to do at shows and, and strive to do is not everyone's going to want to be here, yeah. but if I can turn them into a fan with the live show, I can keep them. Do you think about that every time before you walk out on stage? Like, is it, is it a common thought in your head before you go perform? It is because it's not everybody's going to necessarily want to be there. They might get dragged out with friends. Mm -hmm. and, and so what can I, what value can I provide as an artist something that's going to resonate with them to have them go, I would see that again. Yep. Whether that's musically, lyrically, mm -hmm. the banter in between songs, like yeah. what's something that's going to catch them that they're going to go, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd buy into that. Yep. So yeah, that show completely changed my life. Crazy. <laughs> Spent again, that year and a half working at Napa, trying to play as many shows as I could. Justin introduced me to a few people in Calgary. Mm -hmm. I played the Ranchman's Rising Star Contest, met a few people there, kind of just trying to find ways to integrate myself within yep. the community in Calgary. And while I, not living here, while not living here. Mm -hmm. So I was, I think I, that year, I think I put 140,000K on my car. What were you driving then? Uh, I drove a few vehicles that year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, like a 2001 Buick car. Mm -hmm. Super comfy. Mm -hmm. Took it to California and yeah, back. It's a big, like a lazy boy driving yeah, down exactly. the highway. Yeah. Drove that. I had an old minivan for my grandparents for a while. Mm -hmm. I still had that 76 Oldsmobile that I drove in high school. Or a two door thing college. or four door? Two door. Okay. A little two door, like Nova looking car. Okay. And what else did I drive? Is that your first car? No. That olds? No. My first car was a 85 S10 Blazer. Cool. Two wheel drive, mm -hmm. rust free, only had 14,000 miles on it. It was from California. Cool. And someone put a 85 tune port fuel injected Corvette 350 in it. So it's like, it was like a, was it like the Typhoon body style? Exactly. Yeah. Same so it was like thing. the first version of a, like an early version yeah. of the Typhoon. Yeah. So 85, it was two tone blue and silver, had cool. Corvette rally wheels on it, and then this insane fuel injected small block. So there were, the reason I, I'm asking because I know you're a car guy. My my first car was a 1970 Chevelle, Malibu Chevelle. Nice. My dad bought it for 800 bucks. Amazing. Two door or four door? Two door. Nice. Yeah, green, green on green with a black vinyl top. Amazing. <laughs> That's cool. So like my dad's a car guy 
and he just kind of like instilled it on all of us. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> well, I guess that was the first car I drove when I was eight or 10 or something, I bought a Model T. And I'd owned a bunch of cars before I was actually legal to drive. So I had a Model T, I had a 53 Packard. No way. Uh, did you get a loan for it or what did you do? No, just from working and you saving had money. It? And my, my dad had always told me he'd help me out on my first vehicle. Mm-hmm. Up to $5,000, they would cover half of it. So mm-hmm. if, I could, if I could cover half of it. So the first Model T was like 1500 bucks. It was just a body. Um, and it was, yeah, 1500 bucks. So I paid... 750 my dad paid 750 and we like did a few things to it and then cool. ended up selling it and i think we got a little more than what we had into it mm-hmm. so i got a little bit of the profits mm-hmm. from that and he got the other bit of the profits yeah. kind of thing but and a little bit in something else yeah and then it was yeah there's i should make a list of how many vehicles For I, sure, man. I was thinking about that with guitars the other day too because i've been I've been on a tear with guitars these days <laughs> <laughs> so i should make a list so that one day i can look back and dude yeah, because those are, um, you know, as obviously we we get older, and, like those memories of these vehicles, guitars, like they're, there's going to be some asshole like me asking you this question in 30 <laughs> years, and you'd be like, oh yeah, I'd like, I had all these. A list of the yeah, guitars it's, you it, through. It's, 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 it just helps build your story. Totally. You know what I mean? Like it, that's what's unique, right? Absolutely. Like that, that and everything else that you're into is, that's, that's your story. Totally. So. You were driving back and forth. Driving you're, you're back and trying forth. to try and get. I got you, buddy. You're, you're connected <laughs> in the scene. You're getting connected in the scene. And I applied for a program called Canada's Music Incubator. That was a program ran out of Toronto, and it was basically a ten-week program on the music business. Yep. There's no book on how to be a musician. There's no yep. book on how to make money as a musician. And there's a lot of, I think, horrible stereotypes about musicians and creating a viable business with it because yep. it's either you're broke or you're rich. There's no, nobody talks about that, the actual like working class, like doing well musician mm-hmm. range and Calgary's full of those. Like we have so many musicians in Calgary that are incredibly successful with families and kids and mm-hmm. they're not huge stars, yep. but they're not scraping by yep. eating craft dinner every day. And mm-hmm. So it's how do you take it from scraping by to turn it into a viable business? And this program was a 10-week program where they brought in lawyers, marketing experts, uh, business advisors, financial advisors to talk about the music industry and also to talk about all the different revenue streams as a musician that you have access to. And when you release a song, how do you make money off of that song? What are the different performing rights organizations you have to sign up for in order to generate royalties and get get that income. Hmm. So my boss at Napa let me take 10 weeks off, came down to Calgary, rented like this insane condo across the street from Cowboys on like the 27th floor for 10 weeks and spent way too much money on it. <laughs> can't imagine. <laughs> and the program was run out of the King Eddie and the National Music Center. Oh, cool. And I guess six months after I took that program, I was able to quit the job at Napa and I moved to Calgary. Hmm. So that program taught me so much about how to actually turn this music thing into a real thing that we can, we can monitor. I hate saying that. I know. I, 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 I was, I was, I had the word in my head and you were like, yeah, like just I, I, make a living. Yeah. It's a, at the end of the day, it's a music business yeah. and it's, if you want to 
have a career off of it. You have to make money because you need money to live yep. at the end of the day. Yep. So how do you take what you're doing and turn it into something that can generate revenue for you so that you can live? Mm -hmm. And I remember coming out of that program with my mind completely blown, like overwhelming amount of knowledge, just like bursting from mm -hmm. everywhere in my body. Mm -hmm. And I'm still implementing things that I learned in that program now cool. because there's so much stuff that you can't just implement it all overnight. It's years yeah. of, of knowledge that they give you in this 10 weeks. And so I decided I was going to quit my job at Napa. I gave my notice, I gave my boss two months notice because he had been so yeah. good to me. Yep. And right at that time, I was like, I got to move to Calgary. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to move. And I gave my notice. And a week later, I got a text from Maddie McKay, who at the time was Breckis's guitar player. Justin had introduced me to him and I'd seen him around at a few things. And he said, Hey, are you still thinking about moving to Calgary? And I said, actually I am. I just gave my notice at my job. And he goes, great. Well, him and his fiance had just got engaged and he decided that he was going to be moving out of his house and they were going to move in together. The house that he had had a studio in the house. There's two other musicians that lived in the house. One of them was Adam Dowling, who was George Canyon's drummer and Aaron Pollock, who's a good friend and songwriter also. He lives in Nashville now. And he said, so I know you were thinking about moving to the city, so I thought I'd give you the first opportunity if you wanted to move into the house with the guys. And it was like, everything just lined up like that. It, it, it's, it's wild how it happens. And dude, not knowing you from, you know, meeting you for the first time right now, I get this vibe that you're like an actual good dude. That's the variable in all this though, right? People can have all these weird experiences. And I think the, the, the variable is, are you a good person? You know, because you can, you can be in situations. And I think sometimes people don't remember you or they, there's no, you know, if you're an asshole, there's yeah. no way you're getting that phone call. Totally. Well, I guess I'll thank my parents and grandparents and <laughs> everyone, everyone. Small, small town. Small town. <laughs> and so it was literally like the stars had aligned. I was like, there's this place in Calgary I can move. And... So I went down and looked at the house and there was like unbelievable studio in the garage that they'd built. And then this amazing great house in a great part of town, rent was affordable. And I was like, cool. So my plan was I was gonna work harvest for some farmers outside of Innisfail for the month of September. And that was gonna set me up for the winter. Mm -hmm. So no matter what happened, cause I'm moving to the city and I don't really have any gigs. I've been playing all these one-off things yep. in Innisfail and Old, Sylvan, Red Deer, once in a while in Calgary but I don't really actually know anyone in Calgary. I don't know how to get gigs. And so I'm 21 at this point now. Okay. And 20 or 21. Moved to the city. Well, actually I was supposed to work harvest. Week before we're supposed to start harvest, they say, sorry, we don't need you anymore. Okay, well, I was gonna be set up for the winter. And now I'm moving to Calgary and what was gonna be my safety net is now no longer. Mm -hmm. So I ended up selling one of my guitars so I can put some money in the bank mm. just as a safety net. And that's, I've owned, bought and sold probably well over a hundred guitars. And that there's one that I regret and it's that one. No way. But I, I don't know if I, re I regret it and I don't because I don't know if I would have made it through the winter if I, if I hadn't had that safety net mm. because I sold that guitar. It was a 66 Gibson Hummingbird that I bought at a garage sale in Innisfail. And the few thousand dollars that I got out of it at the time was was enough to set my mind at ease so mm -hmm. that I could feel okay about going to the city. Yep. And so I moved to the city, 
And it's like, well, I need to figure out gigs now. And I'd been attending the Country Music Alberta Awards at this point. And I guess I did know more people than I'm, I'm giving credit to. I'd been to the CCMAs in Saskatoon. Yep. I'd been to the Country Music Alberta Awards a couple times. Just hanging out? Hanging out. And we kind of had a, there's a crew of us. There's five or six of us that were really good friends. And we'd all started writing together. Okay. But I didn't have enough gigs to actually make a living at this point. I think I'd played 50 shows that year, which is quite a bit. Seems like a number. Totally. But then it was, the grind was on. Like, I got to make this, I really got to make this work. And so I was playing all these gigs at little pubs for 100 bucks and 150 bucks. All around here? All around Calgary, basically. Okay. Everywhere I could play a show, I did. Yep. So this was 20, October of 18, 2018, I moved to Calgary. And... Dude, it's like fresh, hey? Yeah. Like, now that I'm like in this story, I know what the date is today. I'm like, holy fuck, this is like... <laughs> yeah. Okay. So October 2018, moved to Calgary. Start trying to book shows, just reaching out to venues. That's it. Self-starter. Just like put yourself out there, try and connect with people. Hey, what are you looking for? Hey, hey, hey. Totally. Okay. And also all of the, the musicians that I did know in the city were willing. They knew that I was new to the city. Yep. They were giving me contacts to some of their corporate booking agents and things like that. That, cool. that booked for like the Fairmont Banff Springs. And, mm -hmm. and so I could slowly start kind of creeping my way into all these different, yep. different ways to make money. And then I got a gig playing at the Calgary airport and I was busking in the Canadian departure side. Okay. And I would go there five days a week, 7 a.m. And I'd busk from 7 to 10. And sometimes I'd make 50 bucks, sometimes I'd make 100 bucks, sometimes I'd make 500 bucks. And I did that every morning. And then I'd come home and I'd sit on the carpet living room, living room, the big mat we had, and I'd roll nickels and dimes and quarters pay for my rent and expenses Crazy. and I'd take it into the bank and I'd walk in with a thousand dollars and rolled nickels and dimes and quarters from tips that people had paid me. And that's literally how I survived that first year was playing 2019. I played 220 shows in the city and it was, I'd say probably a hundred of them were busking yep. where I was there. Yeah. Sometimes five days a week, literally rolling nickels and quarters and dimes. What does that feel like, you know, to be, um, to be a busker, especially in an airport, right? It's kind of like people, you know, they're not there for an uh, artistic experience. Totally. They're there for a reason, right? Yeah. It's like A to B. So what does that feel like? You know, like, I'll give you a little bit of context before you get going. I was a DJ in Calgary for nine years. Played, played some of the coolest clubs, hundreds of people, you know, the electricity of watching people. And then you have some gigs where you're just like, you're playing to a wall. There's mm -hmm. like nothing happening. It's like soul, it hurts. So when you're in this airport, just I want to give people some context for what's actually happening here. Cause like a hundred shows in an airport rolling down, like I can see, like it feels like a commitment. It was, I hated it and I loved it. I think if I hadn't played all those shows, it wouldn't, that was the best way I could cut my teeth to become an, artist and a performer and figure out what it is I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. Also figure out what I didn't want to do. Yep. You have 10 seconds to catch people's attention. Mm -hmm. So everything you're playing has to have something in it that's going to make people look because mm. you only have 10 seconds as they walk by you to get their attention. If you don't get their attention, yep. you don't get their money, <laughs> even if it's 25 cents. Totally. And 
So I think it, it forced me to find ways to interact and create excitement in a non-exciting place yep. to try and capture people's attention mm -hmm. when they were not somewhere where they wanted their attention to be captured. Yep. But ugly, that's uh, 7 a.m. at the airport of all the shitty places in the city. Whatever you, whatever decision you made, like I'm going to put this work in. Yeah. Like that's a, that, I'm, I'm on this thing on this show. People always see the end, right? They see the highlights. When we get to what just happened to you a few, you know, a few weeks ago, that's all people see. I think what's very interesting in a story like yours is that. That is like a grind on a different level. Totally. It's, uh, it was one of those things like my dad always told me, you can do anything in life that you want. Whatever it is you want to do, you can do it. But it's going to take time. It's going to take dedication. It take perseverance through all the horrible times, and you can't give up. Mm. So if you want to do it, you've got to figure out how to make it work. Because mm. nobody else is going to come. If you just sit around and wait for something to happen, it's never going to happen. So you've got to figure out how you're going to make it happen. And sometimes that's busking for nickels and dimes and quarters to pay the rent. And sometimes that's playing a show to thousands of people. It sounds like a song, by the way. <laughs> nickels, like a song. nickels and dimes. Like, holy <laughs> hell, has, has he written something already? <laughs> Crazy. I, I did write a song kind of about that good things. The title track to my, my debut record is just about how good things in life take time. Mm. Whatever that is that you're doing. Because mm. like you said, a lot of the time, you don't see the 10 years of work. You see the overnight success or yeah. the someone oh. blow up. And, yeah. <laughs> The overnight success with the 15 years of behind-the-scenes work that nobody got to see. Yep. So, yeah, 2019 was wild. Played 210 shows. I got accepted into this program, this country artist development program called Project Wild. Uh, it's based here out of the city, put on by Patterson Radio Group. So it was Wild 95.3 in Alberta Music. Yep. They picked 12 of the up-and-coming artists in Alberta. Submit You submit like a... Submit a whole package, yep. basically. Yep on what your plans are, everything like that. Mm -hmm. What you want to do, what you want to get out of Project Wild, what are your weaknesses? That's also an interesting question when someone asks you what your weaknesses are. What do you say? What did you say? <laughs> I'm trying to remember what my answer would have been at the time. I think my weakness was that I, I, didn't, I didn't know how to do everything. Mm. I didn't know how to, and you never know how to do everything, but I did I was not well-versed in every aspect of the music business in terms of uh, how do we root a tour? How do we do all these yeah. things? So my weaknesses are the fact that I don't know how to do everything and I know that I can't do everything on my own, so I need to start building a team mm. because I can't do this on my own. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, I think what my weakness was. And also yeah. one of the weaknesses was that I hadn't released a ton more music. I'd mm. released two singles since that radio contest. Mm. So you're pretty quiet. And it was pretty quiet. So I was playing all these shows, doing mm -hmm. all these things, kind mm -hmm. of, I was writing a ton of songs. I was back and forth to Nashville a bunch, kind of figuring out who I was as an artist, what I stood for, what I wanted to say, what was the impact that I wanted my music to have. And I didn't, I don't think you get to know, I think some people search their whole life for what that is. Dude. And some people, yeah. I was very fortunate to have a lot of good people around me that Ooh. helped kind of narrow in those ideas and could mm -hmm. see the direction that I wanted to go and, mm -hmm. and helped create opportunities for that. But ultimately it took playing those 210 shows just in that year and writing a hundred and some songs and, and playing all these different things to figure out what it is you want and what you don't want. Mm -hmm. 
And once you know what you don't want, it's really easy to focus on what you want. Yeah. Because you're never chasing opportunities that don't leave you feeling fulfilled. That um, who you, who you are and like those big questions, those are like heavy hitters. They are. You're, you know, they're um, the guy that was here. The guy that was here before you. He's like mid fifties. And like he was asking those questions late in his life, you know, like so to be asking them at any age, but to be asking those at an early age puts you on an interesting path. Yeah. And it really makes you question everything you're doing because yep. is what I'm doing pushing towards what I want. And so I got into this program and basically it's a, it's a six month program that has all of these different aspects involved to it. There's a, a charity component and you have to create a charity event, which is how I started Ride to Remember, which is a charity that I still run now. You have to do a social media interaction and engagement challenge of interacting with fans online. You have to do an introductory video that's two minutes to explain everybody who you are, what you are, what you do. And you have to, I don't remember what the fourth one is. I can't remember. Anyways. It was a, it's like a, like a it's interesting you're like, uh, music education on these little these programs. Absolutely, I don't think I would be able to accomplish anything that I have without that that knowledge and network of people that have mm. taught me so much and are still continuing to teach me a ton. Crazy. And then the big part is at the end of it, they pick a top three. First place gets a hundred thousand. Second place gets seventy five thousand. Third place gets fifty thousand. Big numbers. Big numbers. And there's only twelve of us. You have to create an eighteen month business plan down to every single detail no shit. of how you're going to spend the money if you get the $100,000 and how you're going to continue your business if you don't get any money. Wow. So you have a plan A and a plan B. Hmm. Plan A is 100 grand, so figure out how you're gonna use this money, what you're gonna do, what opportunities you're gonna create for yourself, how can you use that money to grow your business. Plan B, we don't give you any money, how are you gonna make it work? What's your plan? What's your plan B? How are you going to do it? Hmm. So I didn't end up in the top three, but the plan B that I wrote was achievable. So I didn't make the top three in the program. I got out. I realized, well, I guess I made this business plan. This is what I have to do. So let's follow through with the business plan now. Does, is it, does it sting not getting top three? Is it, you know, we'll, we'll reconvene on that in a okay. second. <laughs> There's the next part to the story. <laughs> okay, awesome. So it's 2019, end of the year. Got a plan. December. And February 2020, play my first solo headlining show, full band at the King Eddie. We sold it out. Had And I hadn't released any music. In How'd you sell it out? Hustle tickets. Just like? Called everybody I knew. Yep. Social media ads. Put yep. posters downtown. Mm -hmm. Put a did, bunch of videos online. Did it. Sold it out. We had 168 people there, I think. Awesome, dude. And That's a feeling. So that was really cool for me. It's like all of these 210 mm -hmm. groundwork, foundation-laying shows that I'd done the previous year Perfectly. allowed me to do this. Yep. Fly to Nashville the day after the show. Why are you going there? What's the... It's the... You've been there back and forth, right? Yeah. yeah I've okay. been there... I don't know, a dozen times now. Yep. It is the largest hub of great songwriters, great musicians, great artists mm -hmm. in one area. And over the few years, I'd, I'd been able to meet a lot of really great people. 
that are living in Nashville, but maybe originally from Canada. So yep. when I went down there, I was able to have connections and, and write with people. And, and that's the biggest thing is I always go there to write. Cause gotcha. there's something in the air down there. I don't mm, know what it is. There, there's a feeling mm. when you walk into that city that is really cool. It's a super inspiring place to be. Have you been to Nashville? No, man. Gotta go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I'd love to go check it. You see it all, you see it all the time, right? Yeah. It's, it's getting busy now. Mm -hmm. Even from when I started going there, I think the first time I went was in 2018. To now, it is Wait. quite an immense difference in terms of the amount of people that are going mm. there. Um, but I flew to Nashville and going to write a bunch of tunes, as I had done every time. And I guess in the back of all this, there was another thing kind of going on in, in the personal world. Uh, my dad had been diagnosed with liver cancer. Mm. And... I'd put myself up to be a donor to donate my liver to him. And I was in Nashville and I got a phone call while we were in the middle of writing good things. And I got a phone call from the Edmonton hospital saying, Hey, we've had a change of plans. You're able to come in early to get your MRI and your blood work. And you have to go through a whole series of things. I have to go through social counseling and a bunch of things like that to find out if I was uh, mentally stable, financially able yep. and willing to do this donation. Mm -hmm. And so they said there was an opening for you to come do all that groundwork early. You could come in on, I guess it would have been February 10th. And I was supposed to go in on February 23rd. And my Nashville trip was supposed to go till February 13th. And I said, is there any chance if I come in early on the 10th, that that will change the outcome of a potential transplant date if I'm a candidate. At this point, I don't even know if I'm a candidate. It might mm. just be, they might do an MRI and go, oh, no, you're not. Doesn't work. And 40% of people were denied because of the anatomy of how it's built. And they said, nope, if you come in on the 10th, that won't have any, any difference at all. And I was like, if I come two weeks early, there'll be no difference in the outcome of the transplant date if all the stars line yeah. were able to. And the lady said, well, I'm not, I'm not supposed to tell you this but there was an opening the following week. So if you came back and you did it, again, the chances are very slim that you're even a match. Mm -hmm. But if you come back, there is that possibility. So we finished the right, I changed the date, changed my flights, flew back overnight. My dad and I drove up to Edmonton, did all of the testing. Turns out I was a match. This is, so it was three days in Edmonton, February 13th, this is now. I have shows booked the 14th, 15th, 16th, in Calgary. So we finished the testing on the 13th. They go, yep, you're a match, you're good. We have an opening Monday morning, the 18th, if you wanna come in and do the transplant. Four days from then. Holy hell. So, and we're both completely rattled. Three years previous to, prior to that, they had given my dad six months. So it was like, we're already three years in into this. So Bonus. Of, yeah. We're two and a half years over the supposed expiry date, but he was, he was bound and determined that there was not going to be an expiry date. <laughs> and so we say, okay, we'll do it. Like there's, there's nothing else we can, we have to, like, if we don't do it now, who knows when we can. And so go back, play my shows, the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th. We drive up to Edmonton. My mom got to leave of absence from work. They told us we'd be in the hospital for three months. Uh, or my dad would be anyways. So we rented an apartment right across the street from the hospital. We go in, get there Sunday night, go in Monday morning at 5 a.m., 
do the transplant. They took 80% of the left side of my liver, took my dad's completely out, replaced mine with his, or yeah, took mine and put it in him. <laughs> and 10 days, I was out of the hospital, back across the street at the apartment. 14 days, he was out of the hospital, back across the street at the apartment. They told him he'd be laid up for three months <clears throat> and in there the whole time. And he recovered so fast, it was unbelievable. <clears throat> and so then it's February 18th. We're now March 10th, I guess, 2020. There's a show, there's just a tornado in Nashville. So there's a show happening in Edmonton that Brett Kissel was doing a fundraiser for. And I was out of the hospital, feeling good. I was like, this could be my, my first outing. I'm gonna go out, see all the guys again, because I hadn't seen them in forever. And so we go to the show. Do, do the thing, hang out for the night, come back to the apartment. Next morning, it's March 12th, I think. Juniors are canceled, NBA's canceled, hockey's canceled, everything's canceled. Mm -hmm. There's this thing going on. Mm -hmm. No one knows what's happening. The world's shutting down. Everyone's scared. Like, what is going on? So we get a weekend pass to go home for the weekend because my dad's like, I just want to smell my shop. I just want to walk into my shop mm -hmm. and just know that like yeah, yeah. I got through this <laughs> and like we're recovering. <clears throat> we go home for the weekend. We're supposed to go back because he still has a month and a half of rehab and physio and stuff like that to do. Go home for the weekend. Sunday, the whole world's blowing up with the disaster that it was. Yep. It proceeded to be for two years. And so we call the hospital back and they say, don't come back. So we spent the rest of our recovery at home. So we were supposed to be there for three months and in 16 days or 18 days, we were back at home, did the rest of our recoveries at home. Hmm. Thankfully, my mom was a nurse, obviously. Yeah, professional. <laughs> so she could <laughs> look after us. But uh, that, that, it doesn't even like, being in Nashville, I'm sure you're on a high, writing a great track to that. Like just to be like, it all changes in, literal blink of an eye mm. and that's a if 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 we hadn't have got the transplant then i don't know if we would have been able to get it because all yeah. elective surgeries were canceled yeah for, for, for how years. long yeah uh i don't know if my dad's health would have stayed up enough that he could even be eligible to get a transplant because mm -hmm. that's the other thing is you have to be sick enough to get on the list yep. for a transplant and healthy enough to still get the transplant so you can recover so there's a very small window that you have mm -hmm. of where you're actually able to get in and and have that happen. Mm. And a literal miracle that all of that lined up the way it did. Yeah. Um, I still don't think I've actually quite processed it I was gonna it say, all. man, like how do you, <laughs> yeah, how do you, I, I, I begin to look back on that. Yeah, I think it was all just a, I just powered through it. It's yep. like, this is what we have to do. We're working. We're just make it work. Mm. There's no stopping. It was like, mm by no means am I comparing it to playing at the airport at 5 a.m., but yeah. it's one of those, or 7 a.m., but it's yeah, just yeah. one of the things you have to do. Yeah. It's like, this is what we have to do. We're doing it. We're making it work. Mm -hmm. There's no other option. This, yeah. is, this is it. So then the world shut down. We're back at home. I ended up moving out of my place in Calgary because there's no shows to be had. Yeah. I'm recovering. So I moved back to my parents' place, uh, spent the summer there. And that's when I was like, cool. How do we, I don't know how long this thing's going to last. What's going to happen? How do we, how do we make this thing go in a time where nothing is going? It's like the world's on pause. Mm -hmm. How do I keep moving forward? So I went through all the songs that I'd written over the past few years, started working with Spencer and Justin, who are my current producers. They'd recorded the last two songs as well. One I'd done in 2017 and one in 2018, but it was now 
mid late 2020 and hadn't done anything with them in two and a half years in terms of recording. So go through all these songs, pick the first song we want to record. But of course we can't even get into a studio at this mm -hmm. point. So we're just, we recorded it virtually from home. We connected all the musicians via FaceTime, had no meetings. Way. We built like basically a, a demo track to send to everybody and then everybody else played on it and we all put it together. I built a vocal booth in my parents' basement with like moving blankets so we could record. Like all this shit. <laughs> yeah, literally <laughs> recorded the song. And that was kind of my first reintroduction back into it mm. in terms of releasing music as an artist. And then proceeded to, in November, 2020, we started working on the record that came out last year and started getting together, going through all the songs. And actually three, now I'm trying to think, three of the songs that were on the record were written on that trip to Nashville in February, right before everything happened. So it's weird how all those- Dude, it's gonna be, whatever age you get to, if you're 50s, whatever it is, and for you to look back, wherever you end up, whatever happens, to look back on this like chunk of time you just went through, it's like, I don't know, a movie. So it's like make-believe. It's just, it's so crazy. It was a wild, it, it has been a wild what? four years. And it's still just, <laughs> yeah, it's still climbing. So it's, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful to have a lot of really good people around me that have mm. obviously helped make all of this happen. Mm. I, I'm not going to take the credit on no, my no. own, obviously. Um, but it's interesting though, hey, like a few different things happen and you're like, this isn't, you're in a yeah, totally different place. Totally. So we start recording the record, start, start working on it. I didn't know what the plan was going to be, but again, I had this business plan that I'd come up with in 2019 for Project Wild. Like, well, time to follow that through. So we made the record. Obviously, a lot of things are involved in making that record. In 2021, I got back into Project Wild for the next season of Project Wild that they were having. Hmm. Because if you didn't get in the top three, you could reapply and get back in. I gotcha. So I reapplied. As I was in the middle of working on this 18-month plan, my plan B, and went through Project Wild all again and made the whole plan again, world was opening back up. We're starting to play shows. Yep. Some of the 2020, I was supposed to have some of the biggest shows in my life playing festivals outside of Alberta and kind of expanding all that got wiped. So then it gave me time to get everything ready for 2021. When things started opening, we got to play Nashville North at the stampede. Cool. We got to kind of like slowly start expanding again. Yep. Back into project wild, do another 150 page report, do all these things. The, chair, the twist chair. on the original idea, twist on the first plan, just like, um, completely different or like, is it like some similarities between the two? Well, the first plan, the first plan B, I guess I wanted to do a four song record. I ended up doing an eight song record. Gotcha. So I went through and basically did a checklist of like what the plan was supposed to be. And now it's like, cool, this is the next plan. Mm. Cause I'm in, I'm get, just getting ready to release my debut record in the middle of this program now. Mm. So I got to write a plan for the next record. That's what's going to come after this. Mm. So went through the whole process again continuing again on the other side to build Ride to Remember, the charity event that I do, and that was one of the challenges. And we had to create a merch item for one of the challenges this year, which I created a, a tour program slash record book kind of thing. We couldn't cool. do a tour because touring wasn't open. Yep. So I created this book that was a breakdown of everyone that was involved in the record, all the writers, all the producers, all the mixers, engineers, everything like that uh, behind the song. And so I go through Project Wild again, 
don't get top three. <laughs> and then coming out of Project Wild, the day we handed in our report, I got a phone call from SiriusXM that I got accepted into this thing called Top of the Country, which is a program put on by the Canadian Country Music Association and SiriusXM. And they pick eight artists from across the country, send them to a studio with their band and their producers. They get to record a song, record a video, and then it basically goes to a panel of judges and crowd voting to determine who's going to get first place in that. And that is a $25,000 first prize, cash prize, and a bunch of recording time and a bunch of other things like that. So we get to fly out to Vancouver, April 2022, this is now. So my record had come out a week before this. Now we're flying to Vancouver to work on the start of the next project. So I didn't get in Project Wild Top 3. So now it's like, cool, time to work on Plan B again. I guess we're starting it earlier than I thought, starting the first song. And so we fly out there. Got to take my whole band, producers. We recorded a where- at the studio called The Warehouse, oh. which is owned by Brian Adams. Mm-hmm. So we're hanging out at The Warehouse, recording the song. Hear someone playing guitar upstairs. I ask, who's that? Oh, just Brian. He's just recording. What? <laughs> I'm like, I'm a huge Brian Adams fan. <laughs> so we finished recording for the day, and I'm standing in the kitchen, and we're all just having a snack, and I hear footsteps and I look up and there's like a shining light and there's Brian Adams walking down the stairs towards me. He comes over and he's like, Hey, I'm Brian. As if I don't know who he is. (laughs) And he was like, are you guys going to be here for a little while? And we were just heading out the door. And I was like, Oh yeah, we're still here for a bit. Like, and I kind of look over the serious XM people and they're like, it's fine. Like, and he's like, okay, I'm going to go get a coffee. When I get back, I'd love to give you guys a tour of the studio and show you around the place. So he goes across the street for a coffee. 10 minutes later, comes back and spent the next hour and a half crazy touring around the studio showing us everything and we're standing upstairs this is this is one of the coolest moments of my entire life to this point we're standing in the studio he's telling about telling us about all the things he's recording and he goes hey you're a guitar player right I go yeah he picks up a guitar and hands it to me and it's a 57 martin which is like unbelievable to begin with. I start strumming it and he goes, yeah, that was Johnny Cash's guitar. And I'm, I just like, I, I've never been so excited and nervous at the same time. <laughs> All of it. And so I'm sitting there like playing Johnny Cash's guitar that Brian Adams owns in the studio in Vancouver. So that was, that whole trip and weekend was quite a redemption Mm. Not necessarily redemption, but like a really positive that came out of uh, not placing top three of Project Wild. But I think, Mm. again, it's like that perseverance of not giving up regardless of the the Mm. outcome of whatever situation you're in. And it's like there was a light at the end of that kind of dark tunnel of not getting in the top three. Obviously, being in the program was still unbelievable and it, it forced me to follow a business plan and marketing plan so mm-hmm. that I could do everything I've done over the past three years. So we get to record that song didn't win top of the country, which is funny because the song we recorded was a song called underdog. It's about obviously not winning. Yeah. And yeah, there was, I was, on, I was on a bit of a, a losing streak in terms of competitions <laughs> over three or whatever it is. <laughs> and, uh, so we released that song and got to go through the summer, play a bunch of amazing festivals, got to fly, fly out to PEI, no way. Um, play Cavendish out there with an artist named Mariah Stokes. Cool. Um, I just played guitar for her out there, but it was still 
an unbelievable experience to get uh, to go yeah, hang was, out there, play at Big Valley, Stampede again. It was a jam-packed whirlwind year. And released, yeah, Underdog in September of last year. Followed it up with a new single at the top of this year and then found out we were nominated for seven Country Music Alberta Awards, which was absolutely insane. It's got to be insane, dude. Like, it's wild. Just hearing this, hearing this story face to face. Okay, finish, go. No, it's just, it was... Uh, nominated for seven and... We ended up taking home... I say we because it was no way anybody could happen again without me. Yeah. Or with, without me, without uh, everyone involved. And ended up taking Horizon Mail Hours of the Year home. And now we're getting ready to go back in the studio to work on the second record. And it's a wild time. It, I feel like I just talked forever. You did. That's the best part of the show. I don't have to say shit. I just like have cool people here and they tell me their story. It is insane, isn't it? It's and wild. I, and I think it's, um, and that's why catching up with you right now after you won that. As soon as you won, I was like, oh, fuck, this is going to be a chat. Because <laughs> it's just, even if you didn't win anything, but it's just, now when, when anybody listens and hears your story, all the ups and downs, all, the, all these little opportunities, the amount of work, like all these things, it, it's, it's unbelievable. It, yeah. It doesn't happen. It's, it's wild. I, I feel very fortunate every day that I get to basically wake up and make cool shit with my friends. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. And again, it's still every day is a learning process. Every day is learning and growing and evolving and, yep. and trying to figure out how to work on the next thing and how to scale up the business more and, mm -hmm. and what we can do to reach more people and yep. how we can make more of an impact. And it's... I feel like it's going to be a never-ending learning journey. Yep. Um, I've been on this this thought process a little bit lately. Um, sometimes when people they get to they get to this point, winning an award isn't a point is is a point. And sometimes people just shut down. Like I'm here, I've made it. But it's it's not. Like like you said, you're going to continue to build your business. You're going to do all these things. You have all these other. If you don't, if you're not moving forward going backwards absolutely and i don't know how quick how quick you started when you win the award how quick are you thinking okay this is awesome maybe it's a little fuel on the fire but i need to keep going forward did you know right away that was your only option i knew before i won the award being nominated to me is a giant thing too right thing yeah i'd never been i think i'd maybe had actually i've never had a final ballot nomination before for any award show other than that first one where I was blues recording of the year where it introduced me to the country scene. Mm. So I have these nominations. How can I use, obviously I've gained respect from the industry and peers yep. and people that I look up to. And for me, that was, that was the coolest part about it mm. is the work that myself and my team have done was acknowledged and recognized by the people I look up to and respect. Amazing. So for me, that was a win, getting nominated. Especially for me, the big, the big one that really hit me when I got nominated was Album of the Year because it's my debut record. We didn't follow any rules when we did it. We kind of made it however I wanted. I took hard rock influences and country influences and all these different things. We didn't follow a formula of yeah. what the industry wants. The radio hit. Exactly. And it got acknowledged. And for me, that's a win because we, 
we just followed our creative vision, yeah. what we wanted. We took risks, we took chances on things, and it resonated with people. So that's more of a win than I could have ever got. And then when we won Mail Artist of the Year, it was, it was the coolest thing. And it just, it's also, for me, the cool thing is there's a lot of people who've been championing me silently from the sides for a lot of years. Mm -hmm whether that's fans, friends, family, people I've met at shows. And I feel like it's a win for them yep. because they've been so invested in everything that I'm doing that I get to share that with them in terms of they've been investing and believing and, and showing up mm -hmm. and we all get to celebrate that success together. Yep. And it wouldn't happen without them. So really the award is it's kind of their award. It, it's yeah. presented to me, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been able to do any of these things if people didn't keep showing up or believe in what was happening. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, it's not just a, a one-man show. No, absolutely not. Mm. So. So crazy, dude. <laughs> uh, this has been unbelievable. A, for you to take the time to do this. Thank you. Oh, any time. Uh, B, your story is, ins it's insane. And the cool thing is, I think what's happening is, as I have artists like yourself on the show, and then other artists seem to find me and find the show. And what's really important is how you kind of just walked it. You like walked through it all. And I think there's like up and comers, you know, they're listening. They're going to see you winning awards. And if they can actually like listen to what you actually said, I think there's a strong message in that. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, I end the show with one question. When I say Calgary, where's your head go? It goes two places. Innovation and community. Fuck Yeah think that no matter what hurdle or obstacle or challenge that Calgary faces as a whole, there's people in the city that find ways to get out of that. And maybe that's because we all have to deal with the miserable cold winters together. We just know how to get through hard times. But whether it is when oil and gas is doing well, there's people in the city that represent Calgary on an international stage incredibly well in that sector of the community. The art and culture community of the world, of Calgary, we've built the National Music Center, we've built all these amazing facilities to champion people in our city and bring people from around the world. So it's like the, the innovation in the community is together as one because we, we create this community that we wanna represent on a world stage and we have people in the city that are wanting to create opportunity for people in the city. Dude, those, are, those, are, those two words are, I'm always talking about those two things. It's just, it's, I haven't been to that many cities. I've been to quite a few. Mm. And Calgary's one of the coolest cities, one of the greatest places I've ever been. I also think the community comes because it's a big city, but it doesn't feel like a big city. And in every sector that you're in, whether it is, especially as a musician, we get to kind of weave through so many different avenues of industries within the city, whether that's playing corporate events for oil and gas shows, you get to meet people there mm -hmm. and you have this path crossing that happens with those people that you may never meet if you were just in your own lane doing your yep. own thing. Yep. And I feel like everybody in Calgary is also willing to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Everybody, doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you do, what your beliefs are. I feel like people in Calgary want 
Calgary to do well. They want people to do well regardless of any of those things. Yep. And it, it allows Calgary to be an innovative city that has an incredibly so- strong sense of community. Well said, dude. It's, it's like, it's, it is. That, that, that's at the root of everything in Calgary. So. Yeah. Um, thanks again. Thank you so much. That was a blast. This is really cool. Yeah.